There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, we are joined by Clay Newcomb, Josh Hilliard, and Justin Michaud to break down two September whitetail hunts. Let's see what we can learn from these two very different experiences. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today, we're playing a little bit of Monday morning quarterback. Uh, By that, I mean we're going to take a look back at two different hunts that just happened here in September 2021, and we're going to analyze what happened, what went right, what went wrong, what do we learn from this, uh, yada, yada, yada. And what's interesting is we've got two very different kinds of hunts. We've got one private land hunt. We've got one public land hunt. We've got one American hunt. We've got one Canadian hunt. We've got one hunt with a guy who prefers wearing overalls. We've got one hunt with a guy who prefers wearing a semi-flat bill hat. So this is all about contrasts today. We've got uh, me and me and Furter Josh Hilliard are going to be talking about our recent Western public land whitetail hunt. And then I've got Clay Newcomb and Justin Michaud, who are going to talk about their Manitoba whitetail hunt. Um, So that's the game plan. And I think we should kick it off talking Canada. Clay, give me some background on on what this is all about. How did this hunt come about? You know, how how did this happen? Where did you go? So so first of all, if you're going to hunt in Canada and you're not from Canada, you have to have an outfitter. So you have to go through an outfitter. So there's really no do-it-yourself hunts for guys like us coming from the States going into Canada. But as Justin, I think, would agree, this is probably the best-case scenario for kind of a do-it-yourself guy wanting to go there. And and I do have some three years of history on this farm with this outfitter. His name's Tom Ainsworth. And uh, it's... It's probably, Mark, my favorite hunt of the year, like above everything I do. It's, uh, you know, a lot of the hunts that I'm doing, bear hunting, backcountry stuff, is, it's hard. I mean, it's like 
you're sleeping under the stars, you're fighting against, you know, your tent camping, you're um, doing a whole lot of different, you're hiking, physical fitness is an issue, low density animals. Man, this to me is like exactly opposite of that. You know, we're staying in a house, we're eating three meals a day at a dinner table. Um, aside from at times in Canada, tough weather to deal with, which we did not in this early season hunt. And it, it, it's just a incredibly fun hunt. We see a lot of deer and the people that we hunt with have kind of become like family to me, um, <clears throat> Tom and Deb Ainsworth. So this was my fourth year to go there. I've been there the last three years. Well, the last four years minus COVID last year, I didn't go. This is my fourth year and I've had incredible luck up there in Canada. I've, I've, Killed the first year I was there, I killed a 152 inch buck with my bow. Second year, I killed a, a really nice eight point that I would shoot every year of my life for the next however many years that is. Um, <laughs> it, it, it didn't score real well, but it was a real heavy horned, tall G2s, uh, just a really gnarly old buck. Um, and then the third year I went, I killed a 156 inch deer. So ton of history. And, but this year I couldn't go during the rut. Every, the three times prior I've been, I've been the first seven days of November, essentially. And this year I couldn't do that. So we bumped it all the way back. Manitoba has an early whitetail season that starts on August 31st. And so that's when I went. We, our first hunting day was, the evening of August 31st and um, yeah just to describe the type of hunting we were hunting alfalfa fields there are it's cropland that juts right up against what the Canadians call the bush which is what we would call national forest and their bush is thick there's really not a lot of opportunity for getting back in there and finding travel patterns like back in the timber for these deer coming out in these fields. It's super thick, very thick. And, uh, so we're hunting these deer in crop fields. And, uh, this year, the, every year, the farm's a little bit different with what crops are there. And this year there was a very, a limited amount of alfalfa and a lot more oats. And that I felt like was advantageous to us because the deer seem to prefer the alfalfa. They also eat the oats, but, um, yeah, so that's, that's where it all started, Mark. Uh, that's perfect. What was like, what was the, th the game plan and like, where was your head at leading into day one? I mean, you'd had three previous years of experience. So did you come into this knowing, okay, based on what I know, I'd really like to hunt in this spot or this spot and this spot. And I think they're going to do this, this, and this, or did you come into it, you know, thinking that this might be totally different because the crops are in different places and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's the kind of place Mark that I, I pretty much had a, there was an 80% chance that I knew exactly what was going to happen. And that, that was true. I mean, I pretty much hunted in the places I assumed that I would hunt. These deer are pretty unpressured and they're pretty predictable. And it worked out just about like what I thought. Um, so, yeah. okay. So then talk to me about what 
you know, you got there day one. You 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 drove in, right? You drove in. Yeah, we drove up to Canada. For me, it was an 18-hour trip. I picked up Justin, and we uh, we arrived early in the morning, like at 3 a.m., and we were out scouting shortly after daylight <clears throat> and uh, saw some deer, saw some bucks on the alfalfa right where we hoped they would be. It was the first place we pulled into, basically. We saw bucks on the alfalfa. And so, it, basically, it was a 10-acre rectangular block of alfalfa that had a big like 40 to 50 acre track of oats to the side of it and uh the wind that first so our first afternoon the wind was coming out of the south and so we hunted the north side of the of the south alfalfa and it's big you know i mean it's you know it's 350 yards probably to the other end and so you're kind of just guessing, hoping that they are coming within, you know, 40 yards of your tree. And uh, we, Justin and I both had saddles. And so we were able to set up in a real small tree that, you know, had never been hunted to our knowledge. I mean, we, we had to trim it out and everything. And I uh, got in the stand probably four hours before dark. And, uh, that first evening we had bucks come on the field, you know, just kind of prime time, you know, an hour to an hour and a half before dark had bucks come on the field. And then the, the last 30 minutes of daylight, Justin said, Oh man, there's a stomper buck that just stepped out. I don't remember his exact phraseology, but I'm pretty That'll sure work. stomper. That seemed to be something. <laughs> is that, is that your phrase, Justin? Is that what you uh, say? No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what I said at this point. I was going to piggyback though. Um, you know, what was cool. I've, I've, I've not to take away from where clay was going, but it was, what was neat was I've only been to an outfitter a couple times, never for whitetail. And like clay said, this place was like as close as you could get to just like knocking on a door and getting permission. Um, you know, there were stands set, but like, like clay mentioned, like we, we went in that morning when we went in to scout, um, we, we came up to that field and as soon as Clay came around the corner, he like dropped down and he said, there's a shooter right here. So we like, we felt good right away about that alfalfa because there was our, I mean, that was probably, you know, where we were way into daylight and there was a shooter that didn't see him, but was, you know, had his head to the ground eating. And, um, so we backed out and and knew like that that we had a pretty good scenario there and we drove around a bit more and a lot of the fields that typically held alfalfa from what clay said in previous years were somewhat empty so again like it just kind of stacked the deck a little bit more in our favor as far as like there's not a ton of places that these deer are going to want to be right now and um but yeah we were you know that that first night setup, we, you know, were positioned in a way that we could both have eyes and we both had binos and, uh, yeah, we had a, a doe and, uh, probably it's hard to tell you, like, you know, at home now would be probably a three and a half year old buck, but Clay swears that those deer are two and a half there, um, that are that size cause their bodies are just huge. But we had a doe and a buck come out early and, you know, he was in full velvet. I don't know. He's like a nice eight. Was it an eight or ten, Clay? Eight point. Eight point. Yeah. Nice deer came out, fed a little bit, 
And then he and Doe went late on the field edge and just decided it was a great place to nap. So we watched them for probably an hour. And um, yeah, we watched deer messing around and they started coming out and I call it a slammer. Slammer. That's I knew it started with an S. There we go. Yeah. And then next next thing you know, man, I had been watching this deer in velvet and I was like, gosh, that's kind of, that's a nice deer, you know, like it, for, for being the first deer that we saw, I'm like, all right this is great. And then this, this other deer came out and all of a sudden <laughs> that, that other buck, the velvet buck just was dwarfed. And, um, I had seen a few photos and then we were at Tom's house and I got to see one of the, the deer he had on his wall, which I think was a 208 or 209, um, that was from that property. And they have this, their frame seems pretty unique. I mean, you know, it's like, seems like a genetic thing there. And when he came out, he just, his rack looked like it was glowing red. I mean, it was just like, you could tell it hadn't been too long since he had shed. It just looked fresh and his body was like a cow. So I was like, man, we are in the game. So the slammer stepped out and clay, how far away was he at this point? Probably 250 to 300 yards, you know, it was a good ways off. And, and we pretty much knew we were out of the game because the deer stepped out on the total opposite edge of the field. But being the first day, that's all we wanted. We just wanted to locate a shooter buck. And the thing about, too, about uh, this outfitted hunt is Tom, and I, I've learned to love this, he doesn't do a lot of reconnaissance. I mean, it wasn't. Like he, he has kind of a philosophy that he wants his hunters to hunt. And so he knew there was a big buck there, but he didn't give us much intel. He didn't show us pictures. And so, you know, we kind of discover this buck and we're like, okay, that's the deer we're after. And Mark, I, I believed it to be 150 inch mainframe 10. He might've, he could have been. 147 or he might have been 155 you know but just a classic 10 and and heavy horned and man those deer from having killed three deer up there that they'll weigh in at 250 pounds almost on the dot i've killed three one weighed 240 one weighed 248 and one weighed um i don't think i ever killed one actually that weighed 250 one the biggest one was 248 so, you know, they're, they're just big deer for us. You know, a big deer at Arkansas is going to weigh 175 pounds, yeah. big mature buck. And so um, when they, when they're that big of body and the horns look fairly big, you're talking about a 150 inch deer usually, if it's a 10 point, you know, and um, so we were in the game uh, that night, Tom came and picked us up in the field. We, so we busted these deer off the field, you know, to get out. Felt like that was the best thing to do. Um, Justin, feel free to tell any of these stories, man. But I'm just going to kind of march through, Mark, right. if, if you want me to. Yeah, Mark, march me through. But make, I want to throw in one thing. Before you give me the full detail on day two, I really want to know the thought process behind how you were planning to adjust. Like, give me the the full rundown of how you were thinking about where to set up day two, because I'm imagining you're taking into account where you saw that deer. You got to take into account the wind direction and, and God knows what else. So, so walk me through that. Sure. Now. Okay. So there's timber on three sides of this field. 
one side of the field butts up against another big oat field. And I just felt like we were going to swap back and forth sides based about pretty much every day. There was some, some version of a North wind or some version of a South wind. So you could hunt one side of the field or the other. And we were watching these deer kind of where they're at. And Tom had a, a shooting house. I mean, basically like a enclosed blind up on a platform. It looked like a porta potty. Let's just a green porta potty. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's about the same size. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. And and all these deer were within bow range of that porta potty. And uh so so the next day we actually went in trying to hang, we were gonna hang a set, hang out of our saddles. And I convinced Justin, I was like, dude, we need to get in that thing because it's going to protect us from any kind of swirling wind. And all those deer were pretty close to that blind. And, and mind, uh, you, mind you, that first night we probably saw, you know, 15 to 20 deer. And most of those deer came out on that end towards the, the blind. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So the, the, well, our plan was to hunt the south end the next day. And so eventually we would end up there. But the next morning, Mark, and this is probably the most unique stand on the property. And from a whitetail strategy perspective, I would be interested if Mark Kenyon and Josh Hilliard would come to this property and would see this stand and would not be like, you I would be interested to see if you would have thought if it was a good spot because I w- I didn't I when was a the porta potty spot or a morning no spot? no I'm sorry oh, this, I'm sorry this is a third spot I'm, I'm about to describe where we sat in the morning okay okay perfect and so basically there's a main county road that bisects the property I mean a a main county road this alfalfa field let's say it sets 300 yards off the road. And it's going to be really hard to describe and boring if I take 10 minutes trying to describe the exact layout. But basically, through observation over decades, Tom has been like, those deer always come by this little corner and cross the main road and go back to bed on the other side of the road. And I just don't think you would be looking at an aerial map and figure that out. I mean, it just you just wouldn't. It's just not it's just not intuitive that those deer cross right there. And the first year I hunted with Tom, he put me in that stand and I was just thinking, Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> you know, the, the rancher, you know, Tom's a rancher, man. I mean, you know, he, he does, they don't whitetail hunt kind of like we do because they don't have to, right. they know the patterns of these deer so well that, you know, they kind of cut through the riffraff of sometimes. And they're just like, Hey, those deer cross right there. Just hunt there. Yeah, Don't worry about it. Yeah. Like, you know, we'd have been thinking like, all right, let's try and get in close to bedding and blah, blah, blah. And Tom's like, you see this two track? I put that in there. So the deer walked down it. And <laughs> sure enough, you sit on this stand that's like 10 yards off of this two track so that he runs his quads around. Like that's just how he accesses around his property. Bear, you know, just to the dirt. And you would think like, well, 
I kind of got screwed here. Like I, I literally you're in the stand within like 30 seconds of being dropped off from the road. So yeah, just, you're, okay. you're, you're hunting. I mean, you've got 1600 acres and you're within, you know, a muzzleloader shot of a main road that like school buses are driving down, you know, <laughs> and, uh, it, it's a gravel road. It, there's not a lot of traffic on it, but, uh, I don't think, I don't think, um, Justin saw the school buses, but usually I do, but, but I've hunted there three years and I'm telling you, I believe that if a man were to go there and this is usually six days of hunting, if you sat in that tree for six days, you'd kill a big mature Canadian buck. I mean, it, it would be so boring because you don't always see deer just some percentage of the time these deer exit these fields and come that way. I would say 30% of the time, I think. 30 to 40. So if you sat there 10 mornings, I think you would have deer within bow range three to four times. Clay, but, is there, sorry to interrupt, but now that you've actually sat the spot, right? So you, it's not like you've only looked at the map. You've actually been on the ground and actually seen it. Is there any, is there any rhyme to why? Like, can you understand now why the deer pass through? Like, is there some little topography thing or something? I, I think it has to do with, they could walk in the timber the whole way and be be covered by timber and cross the road. I think these deer are so un, unpressured, it's just easier than walking through timber. So they walk down the edge of this timber. And no, there, I'm serious. There are multiple things that they could do that I would have predicted that they would do before they do this. So there's not a lot of, reason to it other than it's highly predictable because in three years i have personally seen multiple mature bucks crossed within bow range of that stand and if you could if you could picture it there's a bit of a curve on this two track and so if you followed the curve to the road then that's like how we would get in right but if you are like a, a really open j right and what's happening is they're walking down the straight part of that j and right as it starts to curve, which is probably, Clay, would you say 40, 30, 40, 50 yards from the road? Yeah. Okay, so right when that J starts to, to curve, they cut into the woods right there. And, you know, again, I don't, we didn't investigate too much. But what they end up doing is crossing that road. But for some reason, they're cutting in right there. And maybe they just don't want to go in the driveway. I don't know. But, that, like, consistently, that's what they're doing is just following that road straight in yeah so you you sat next to the road did you see the big giant well so this is a great morning stand though because you can't even see the alfalfa field so these deer on the alfalfa you walk in the dark just out of the truck climb up in this tree you don't spook any deer and then you're positioned for their exit that's what it that's what it happens so on the the next morning mark uh just after daylight we saw three bucks exit the field and come within 10 yards of our tree. One of the deer was a, was a nice full velvet eight point. I, I would have suspected him in the one twenties as score wise. I mean, a nice looking deer, but not a deer that I was interested in shooting, which spoiler alert, uh, there's a little <laughs> bit of, there's a little bit of drama involved in this. So tell it yet <laughs> i passed this i passed this deer but they come right in what's interesting too is this whole time we're watching a very large bear out in the oats probably 500 yards from us 
Hmm. Um, so, so you're you know, conflicted. Oh, not really conflicted. I, I was pretty interested in the deer, but it was kind of cool to be watching these deer and a bear out of the same tree stand, you know? Yeah. Um, so I passed these deer on the first morning. So that evening, Mark, we go to the porta potty stand and, uh, it's not, it's bigger than a porta potty. It'd be like a two seater porta potty. Oh yeah. Um, good. Is this, is this the night you sent me your scent control horror. video? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. The scent um, control video. I thoroughly enjoyed that. We're not going to get on that because there's another conflict of uh, some people don't, you know. Well, now you got to explain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we just uh, kept talking about. I, I uh, don't want to. I don't want to ruin. I don't want to wreck people's worldviews <laughs> on scent control just yet. I mean, later, later, Mark. Okay. Okay. Later. <laughs> So continue. I don't want to. I don't want to bankrupt the scent control companies. Uh, I, <laughs> these guys are just trying to make a living. I get that. Um, um. So the next day, we get in probably four hours before dark and set in this stand. And Mark, it was like, it was perfect. We saw fifteen bucks. I'm trying to fast forward because uh, we saw fifteen deer. Many of them within bow range of our stand. We're looking over this alfalfa. And 30 minutes before dark, we see the stomp, what stomper slammer. buck, slammer. slammer buck. Justin says, there's a slammer buck. And he's looking four or 500 yards across the oats. And here comes this buck that we'd seen the evening before coming from the total opposite direction, crossing a wide open field for several hundred yards Jeez. to enter into the alfalfa. And he walks within probably eight yards of where we were sitting the night before in our tree saddles. <laughs> and we basically uh, watch it get dark while he is just prancing around within bow range of where we set the evening before. And, um, it was pretty incredible. I mean, at this point I've seen the deer twice now on the alfalfa. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. You know, and I, I just tell Justin, and I mean, we had the same thought. It's just like, dude, we just got to keep doing this. And eventually, you know, he's going to end up here. We had the deer. But. It was interesting too, because you know, that, that alfalfa field was just like so lush and green. And I was surprised how much these deer were spending time in these oats. And, and when we say oats, like they were like Brown, like tall Brown oats. It's not fresh green growth. Um, and they were in there just like, you know, hitting them, hitting them hard. So huh. you, you almost had to, you almost had to keep eyes in the oats as much as you did in the alfalfa. Again, that, that alfalfa field, how, how big would you say that field was clay? I think Tom said it was 70 acres now that I think about it. So it that, oat field, that oat field was a lot bigger than the alfalfa field, but I mean, it was nothing to see these deer scoot right out of the alfalfa field and start feeding in these oats and it, you know, looked like dry soybeans. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where he came from that night. He just was cruising across there, taking his time and, uh, yeah, just, he, he started working our way, but you know, dark got to us. So, so next day. Okay. So we, the next day we go back to the County road stand and I'll, I'll give you a couple of clues and then we'll dial this in here 
and 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 the story will be finished okay um the big buck was hard horned and probably 80 percent of the other deer were in velvet okay so that's that's one thing that is in my mind that the big deer is hard horned mm-hmm. um so the next the next morning we climb up in the stand where we'd pass the deer the day before this is the county road stand and it's it's overcast so it's kind of dark but the sun starts to come up we're ready and i pull up the binos and i see three deer coming out of the alfalfa turn and start coming our way and i can tell they're bucks but it's they're you know they're 300 yards away and i can just see racks on all of them and i can tell the one in the lead is hard horned this is where I made a mistake. Um, and you know, it, it, it's kind of cool making a mistake because I don't know, you just learn a lot from it. And, and I go back and I just like track what happened. And, uh, you know, it was so dark. I couldn't see these deer real well, but I could see them through binos and, and, um, and, 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 and I mean, you can see them with your naked eye, but I'm, but once they make the corner, they're coming fast, you know, I mean, they're, they're steady walking. So I pull up the binos one time and the first deer is hard horned and his horns come out to his ears and he just looks like he's got a solid rack. And I just made the decision that is the buck we're after. And that was it. Like he's the one from the night before. That's right. I, I, I say, that's the big one. He's in the front and man, I put the binos up and I never looked back. And they were like, once they, once they came around that corner, they made their way out into that oat field and started feeding their way towards us. So it wasn't, they weren't hauling down that road. Like the, the three we had seen the day before they were kind of taking their time, but you know, they were there. We knew where they were going. Yeah. And and basically clay what is, is this day three is this day three of the hunt yes okay morning of day three because we we fit a bear hunt in between in that one second day right i think so yeah i'm trying to remember that yeah so basically this deer just comes into 25 yards and i never scrutinized him and I could tell that the deer behind him was bigger, but the way the wind was blowing, they were going to cross right into our wind. Like, so I felt like I needed to shoot the first deer and I felt like the first deer was 150 inch deer. The one behind him was slightly bigger. Tom had seen a bigger buck the day before. And I, I felt like, man, I'm not going to get greedy and let this 150 walk past me mm-hmm. and get downwind waiting for this bigger one. And so, man, he comes into 25 yards and, you know, it, it's minutes. I mean, it's early, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's legal shooting light, but it is overcast and it is early. And, uh, and I mean, I pull back and I mean, I can see him perfect through the peep and, but I'm not scrutinizing horns. And I mean, I just tendering him at 25 yards, uh, just shoot. And I mean, just double lung, we hear a twop he runs off falls in the field and i'm elated and uh we go out there and it's it is not the 150 inch buck at all it's a 
you know, I don't even want to say what he would score. Uh, because yeah, I don't know, but it was it was a two year old eight point buck, and uh, man, to say I wasn't disappointed would just be a lie. I mean, I I was disappointed. I've been to Canada three times and killed really nice deer. We were after a really nice deer, and uh, so I was very disappointed. Um, <laughs> and I hate to say it, I hate to say it because it, you know, I mean, there's just there's just no no getting around it you know i mean i i, I shot the wrong deer 100 percent. so clay know? tell me this how do you so I, i'm going to ask this to you clay first and then i'll ask justin next what does disappointed just shot the wrong buck clay look like and sound like <laughs> in that moment you know i'm i'm pretty hard on myself i mean i really am i mean i i in some some <clears throat> some ways you know people might see me as just kind of like happy go lucky whatever happens not a trophy hunter but when it comes to whitetails i'm probably a little bit different i mean um I, I, I yeah i was i was i was quite disappointed i really was and 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 partly because everything was in place for us to kill a good deer you know and and, and to end the hunt that quick and I have a elaborate, elaborate spiel on judging Canadian whitetails. That is killer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, 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 I about all the people that didn't kill big deer that he brought. He so I knew what I knew what we were up against. Oh, Mark, I have I've every the other three years I've been to Canada, I've brought people with me, and every single person, nobody has walked out of Canada with a big. Canadian whitetail. Every single person I've brought up there has made a mistake and shot two-year-old deer. Really? One guy shot. One guy probably shot a three-year-old deer, but it was a 120-inch deer. It's just like anywhere. I mean, they're not all big, you know. So you could have a mature four-year-old deer that had a 120-inch rack. You know, that's possible. No, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I could tell you stories, and it. Um, but every single one of them killed two-year-old deer, and so I have. Oh, I should write an article about judging trophy whitetails in Canada. And well, uh, well, Clay, Clay, you got to tell me what what's the secret to properly judging a trophy whitetail in Canada? Well, you've got to make sure that you're looking at a 250 pound deer. You know, this deer probably weighed 210 pounds, is what I would have guessed. It was a big deer for me. Yeah, it was big. And and the the scale of his rack to his head, if he had weighed 250. He would have been what I thought he was. So when I judged him, I was like, that is a full size, full size Canadian whitetail buck. So you're, you're looking at that body shape, body size, and then you gauge the horns because the first deer I ever killed in Canada, um, I saw him at 80 yards and I thought, oh, that's a nice deer. That's probably a 120 inch deer. Based upon the scale of way, the way his horns looked based on his body. And, you know, assuming I'm looking at 160 to 170 pound deer that have, you know, 120 inch racks. Anyway, I, I thought this deer was 125 inch deer. I shot the deer and he scored uh, 152. So massive ground swell. Yeah. I'm, I walk up that deer like, holy cow. I said, I had no idea that their bodies were this big. And uh, basically, those two and three-year-old deer 
can look like studs um and they're not so that's primarily my spiel is like you really need to look at a lot of deer you need to see these big deer up against these two-year-olds you need to look for that mass um the older deer are almost always going to have really good mass and um you know you just you just got to be careful yeah so so now i gotta switch it over to justin so two questions for you justin number one when you saw this buck coming in and clay said oh it's the one in your head were you like oh yeah that's the one or did you have this whisper in the back that's like i don't think that's the right deer honestly man i i was uh i really didn't get a chance to get good eyes on him this was i think the first hunt that on the trip that i didn't bring my binos and at the speed they were coming i was just trying to make sure i had my act together so um you know i I was filming i was just more focused on filming clay and i was shooting pretty wide at that point so um you know being in my spot there's just more things you had to be concerned with than you know where those other situations i had the camera set up everything was good i had every you know i felt confident and everything it was still early so we were trying to be careful and quiet and not do too much um you know before realizing the situation and and you know figuring out where deer were so i hadn't like really spread my wings yet and so when i saw the deer coming i could tell they were bucks but i wasn't able to really assess whether or not and and clay said he's like man there's a big one he's at that corner and he's hard horned there's three of them he's like the second one is bigger and he started to you know i started to get the the like what he just said i thought oh that second one must be um the one maybe that tom had had seen as well but i could tell clay was going for the lead deer and so i was just trusting his you know what he could see i didn't really have time to get eyes on it and like he said man the bodies on these things like all i could see was you know he they were in the oats it was brown you know and it was like overcast and i wasn't able to pick the the antlers out like i could in that alfalfa field and so they were coming and i was just making sure i was ready and then when clay walked up on him like does clay (laughs) secretly lay down a bunch of cuss words or is there is there some secret part of clay that we don't see that comes out when he shoots the wrong buck what did that look like (laughs) man he was he was swearing at me like no man he he on like i'm in a unique situation because you know here i am filming right like that's my thing that i'm doing there but i'm like i'm i'm hunting i'm just not shooting right i'm not getting to kill anything and um i spend a lot of time in the tree and in the field and so i get the same range of emotion that you guys do like when we you know, when your dad shot that deer on the back 40, like I'm feeling all the same things. Mm-hmm. And so when those deer came, came around the corner, like my, you know, my heart rate lifted and I'm like making sure I got my, my stuff together. But I'm also, I also feel that anticipation that I would feel if I was where clay was and just, you know, trying to like keep my head together. So when he shot the deer, man, we were, we were just so pumped, like, because we kept having encounters with this deer and you know there's always that like that like crux where okay here's the deer 
and the bow's drawn. And the only thing now that you hope for is a good shot. And when he shot, I mean, it just, you know, that sound from heaven, it, it just like that deep cavity, you know, clump sound. And he ran off and he got to the top of this little ridge and he tipped right over. And so like, it was it, that was it. It was like, it was done. It was awesome. We celebrated, you know, you know, here we go. Now we can, now we can shift focus a little bit and we go walking up to it. And man, I can tell you like exactly what I started to think. I'm walking up and again, he's laying in oats that are brown, tan and brown. And Clay's like, here's a deer. And I, I look up from the camera for a second and I'm like, my first thought was, gosh, did he shoot a doe? And <laughs> um, just just for a split second. And then I then I I then I saw the antlers and then I was looking at Clay and man, it hit me like a brick wall. Just like that disappointment that he felt. I could see it in his face. And I felt like I was paralleling what he was feeling because I I just felt all of that. So he he handled it well. It was one of those situations where, I, you know, if I had a tripod, I probably would have stuck the camera on a tripod and just like walked, walked away. But I filmed him, you know, like I think most of all what you have to do in these situations is like you got to You got to be authentic. You got to realize like, all right, like, OK, we killed a deer. It's not you know, it's not this deer's fault. Right. He's dead. And and Clay's not like slinging things and throwing his hat and being like, oh, gosh, you know, he's like he's absorbing the fact that like, all right, I killed this deer. I killed the wrong deer. But here's this here it lays, you know, and I could uh, it was it's a very unique thing to be able to go in as a as a cameraman and and do this but but you're participating in a way that you wouldn't if you were just on a film set you know you it's it's raw you get to you get get to like when a doe blows at us in a tree i my gut sinks just like it does for you guys yeah so uh it's it's a very interesting thing and yeah he was disappointed. I was disappointed. And I think then we were just like, you know, it's just like if you were by yourself and you killed this deer and you walked up on it, you're like, this isn't what I wanted, but we got meat and we have a story and it may not have played out like we hoped it would, but, um, you just got to swallow it and, and move on. Yeah. Yeah. So clay, you, this happened, you were disappointed. You gutted him, you brought him home, you did all the other stuff, you went out there and tried to kill a bear, yada, yada, yada. When you look back on it now, you've had some days now to think about it, to process it. Uh, what did you learn from this experience? Like, wh- What did you learn? What would you do different, if anything? What What's the big takeaway here for you? You know, it's, it's kind of like we, my wife and I have something that we say to each other when things don't go right. And we say, when you ride bulls, you get your teeth knocked out sometimes. And, uh, you know, when you're, you're in Canada and there's just no cahoots about it, we're not like meat hunting in Canada, though the meat from these grain fed deer is incredible. And I brought every stitch of it home and, and we will use that meat. 
but you know, I mean, I'm not saying that I went up there just to shoot a meat buck, you know? And, uh, so you kind of get your teeth kicked in, but it's, uh, it's a pretty good problem in your life. If you kill a deer in Canada and you know, you're disappointed about it, you know, you probably have a, that's not really that big of a problem, but, uh, no, I just made, I, I just judged him too quick, you know, and, uh, you know, I've killed a lot of deer with a bow, hunted up there a lot. And just every little thing that happens, you, you learn from it. And, um, it's just another thing. I, I just, I, I didn't have enough data points and I made my decision too quick. And here's the main thing. Uh, another main thing I learned without getting into our bear hunt, this was a combo hunt. And I was trying to bear hunt and deer hunt. And I don't think I'll do that again because it just put too much pressure on me. Cause the whole time we were deer hunting, we were thinking, man, we got to kill a deer so that we can bear hunt or we're not going to have time to bear hunt. And I feel like the kind of this overall pressure that was on, was on me solely by my choice kind of put a, a, a bit of urgency on me that I typically wouldn't be hunting with. And so in that regard, perhaps I bit off more than I should have, you know, and, uh, you need six days to go up there and kill a good whitetail usually. And, uh, I guess I just had it. I was very confident going into the hunt. Now I told, I texted Justin and told him in there, I felt really humbled. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've been fortunate with some good deer and I, I mean, I think even from a kid, when I started bow hunting, I didn't lot, let a lot of stuff get past me. I mean, I, I capitalized on a lot of good opportunities. And so I've kind of built kind of my perception of myself as a bow hunter. It's like, yeah, I'm proficient. Deer walks by, I'm probably going to kill him. And, uh, and that's just kind of a dumb thing to think about yourself because it's such a complex moment with so many different things. And uh, no, I was just humbled. I really was, uh, just kind of humbled by it and uh grateful that i made a clean shot on a deer very grateful for the deer yeah and uh but but also kind of evaluating my standards too i mean because when you kill a deer you shouldn't feel bad so i'm kind of personally moving through that i've never shot a deer with that much ground shrinkage N never so that's a new experience for me to shoot one that was that far off you know i mean uh so uh i'm kind of like it's kind of dumb to feel bad about shooting a deer and kind of goes against my principles and a lot of other areas of my hunting. So kind of evaluating that, thinking about it, you know? Interesting. Well, you know, you never, I, I've never yet gone on a hunt or had a season where I don't come out of it on the other end, having learned something new and learned something new about myself. And, uh, certainly seems like you guys both, had those kinds of takeaways i mean yeah big buck or not you grew you learned something carry For on sure. pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service it's called the wellness company picture this okay you wake up you got a scratchy throat you're all congested you got a runny nose you got a cough whatever and you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or 
You open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees, it's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This this, this is my way of bull saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Tell us about your hunt, Mark. Yeah, I want to I wanna now throw, uh, throw a little bit of the hosting uh, responsibility over to you guys now. I, I think I want to walk through some stuff, so I'll kind of talk through some of our thought process around this trip and me and Josh can, can tell you what happened, but you guys jump in with all the, you know, follow up questions that you want and what details we miss out. Let us know. Um, so we went on a hunt just about the exact same time as you guys. I think our opening day was the day before. So August 30th, and this was public land. And this is the same place that me and Josh went and hunted last year. Uh, last year, I think we started on September 3rd or 4th, so we were a little bit late. We missed opening day last year. Um, this year, we'd be there the day before opening day, so we'd be able to scout and all that. Um, and uh, I don't know if you guys heard the story from last year, but listeners will remember that we went on this trip last year. It was our first time down to this piece of public land out there, and we kind of had a, a, for lack of a better word, a shit show kind of thing. It was just like every day... There was other hunters kind of blowing our stuff up. Um, there was one day where I'd, I'd gotten on two really good deer the night before, made a move on them, and then that next day, a group of like teenagers on UTVs came driving through, like banging metal pots and pans or something together, and screaming and hooting and hollering and driving all over the place. So I had this kind of negative experience. Um, but at the same time, you know, we saw a good number of deer. I mean, we saw a lot of deer and a couple nice ones. Um, I mean, Josh, you had one hunt where 
I mean, the first hunt you had, there was like the best hunt in your life. What'd you see? Yeah. Yeah. I saw like 50, 60, 70 deer, something like that. Just a, an insane number of deer. Um, and mm. a lot of, a lot of bucks, like 15 or 20 bucks with a couple of those being shooters. So, I mean, the first night out of the gates and we're like, all right, this, this place is awesome. Yeah. Um, and then after that, the wheels just kind of started to fall off. Yeah. So, so we knew this place had this potential. Um, but also the fact that it had the potential to be a mess, um, because it's, it's a little closer, it's significantly closer to a larger city center than I usually like to do out in these Western public land hunts. Uh, it's, it's, it's outside of what I would normally do, but we were trying to find a place that was close to my cabin out there that had quality deer numbers. And and this was the best I could find. Um, so all that said, after last year, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back or not. Um, I guess I never asked, really asked you, Josh. I mean, I know we bounced back and forth on this, but like, what was your gut reaction coming into this summer? Like when you and I were talking, should we hunt here? Should we hunt yeah. here? Were you always yeah. like, ah, oh, we should really go back? Or was there something in your mind was like, nah, we really shouldn't? Like, uh, I know what I was thinking, but. Yeah, I, I was torn on it, honestly. Um, and I think ultimately we made the right decision going back to the spot just for the sheer number of um, deer. Um, the spot is just going to be, it's just going to hold a lot more deer than, um, some of the other spots we were looking at. Um, I, I knew there was a chance we would be dealing with more people, um, almost guaranteed at this spot. Um, but, but even though we saw people last year and it was kind of a, a goat rodeo at times, I mean, we were still in deer almost the entire trip. Um, so I think ultimately it was the right decision to go back here. Um, just for uh, the, the sheer number of deer that are in the area, as opposed to some of these other lower density spots we were looking at, um, that may have some good, good bucks and maybe low pressure, but we could have gone the whole week without seeing a single deer too at some of these other spots. Yeah. Yeah. We, we may, yeah. What's up? What's the, what is the terrain? Like, what are you, what are you hunting? Yep. So this spot is a river bottom. So there's, there's hills on one side. And then uh, down in the river, there's this big river that runs through a valley. And then there's public land that runs along the border of that river. And that public land is mostly uh, grasses, shrubs, cottonwood trees, some sagebrush, and then just a bunch of other cover. Just like thick Russian olive kind of stuff that runs along the edge of that river. So that's the public land. It's long and skinny. Um, there's two access points. There's two different roads that go on either side of this that are separated by, I don't know, four miles, five miles, something like that. So there's like a four or five mile skinny stretch of public land that runs along this river that we have access to. And then outside of the public land, there are crop fields on the private land. Some of these crop fields are alfalfa. Some of it looked like maybe winter wheat. Uh, some of it was corn actually. So, you know, what we saw last year was that these deer obviously bed back in that cover along the river, and then they transition out towards the private land crop fields every night to feed. So, you know, the general pattern of what these deer do is, is simple in that they, they head from the bedding area, which is all on this side, and they head to the feeding area, which is all on that side. Uh, the tough thing about it is that there are there's very little pronounced difference in any of those spots. So where those deer pop out, like how they choose to go from North to South, it could be almost anywhere. It's, it's relative, it's different than hunting on like the back 40, Justin, where we kind of knew, Oh, here's our little like three acre great bedding area. 
and we there's a pretty darn good chance that if there's a big buck around here, he's going to be in this little three-acre bedding area because that's the best thing around. He's probably yeah. going to come out to this food source. No, it's like we have five miles of the same kind of great bedding cover, and we have five miles of the same kind of great food, and you know they could come in and out anywhere, and there's just very little that differentiates. And so our task was to do two things. We had to try to find something that would differentiate and help us pinpoint like narrow down where these bigger bucks would come out. And then secondly, how do we do that? Knowing that there probably would be a bunch of other hunters again, like last year. Um, and ultimately like my, my mental calculus was that I knew there's going to be other people. Like we, we, we both came into it knowing, okay, this place is probably going to get blown up with other people. We just, let's assume it. Uh, let's just like go into this knowing that every day we're going to see people and just knowing that off the bat, off the bat, it will hopefully make it less stressful when it actually happens. It's like every day I was like, okay, don't get stressed out when you see other trucks here. Don't get upset when you see someone walking in because it's just going to happen. Know it and have a plan for that. And ultimately what I believed is that I thought we could out hunt them. I thought that there was enough targets that we would be able to um, have success despite these other people. We could get back behind them. We could hunt them in a different way than everybody else out there wanted to do. Um, so that was, you know, that's the mindset we brought into it. Um, I mean, that's basically where your head was at too, right, Josh? No, for sure. That, that was the same, same type of thing where we thought we could maybe work around them, get in further than them, um, get deeper, uh, into the cover than what most people would like, uh, to do. And, and some of that was based on last year where, you know, a lot of the kind of the preset stands that we saw and a lot of the hunting pressure we saw was kind of tight to the private um you know it didn't seem like there was many people that were getting too deep in there or um really kind of going the extra mile um and i think we just thought we could we could uh we could work around them yeah yeah so is that what you guys did was go if there's this five mile stretch i mean assuming you know two and a half miles in you're kind of in the middle of it and that's that's a pretty good buffer that probably a lot of people wouldn't walk that far that means where how far were you guys in yeah so so i think uh, i think as i'm saying this as as i've been talking this out a lot i'm pretty sure i measured it and it was like right around four i think was what the distance was between the two points and so yes exactly what you said uh we you know last year trekked in as far as we could get in one direction we got in there pretty far right about into the middle of it and then this year you know, the, the, the idea was to start at the place where, you know, I'd seen the most and that ended up being about that far in. So by the time we got to the end of it, I was doing a two mile hike in to my stand every day. Um, now the problem that we eventually get to and that we saw a little bit last year and it continued this year was that some people were getting access through the private land. So mm-hmm. some of these people had, you know, locals had connections, were able to shortcut in that we just couldn't do. Um, but you know, we, we did what we could and that we got there the night before opening day and we decided to split up and, and glass that first night and try to see like, are these deer doing what we think they're doing? Is there any way we can get some Intel that will pin down a little bit more of exactly where they're coming out onto this private land that might be able to help us choose where to start. Um, so Josh, you know, he was able to get up on one of those Hills I was talking about on the one side of the river and I was able to drive along a road on the opposite side of the river along the private fields. So we had two different perspectives 
looking in at the same general area. And then that night, you know, we just glassed as much as we could and saw as much as we could. And I don't know, it was sort of useful in that it just confirmed our general idea, which was there's a lot of deer. There's a bunch of bucks. There was several bucks that, you know, they're far enough away. We could not tell exactly what they were, but I think we each saw a couple deer, Josh, that both you and I were like, okay, that could be a potential shooter, right? Um, it was that kind of yep. thing. Yep, and sure. I don't think either one of us was able, because of the various like topographical features and cover features, like it wasn't like we could pinpoint exactly where they came in and out of the private, but we knew in general, like, okay, this little corner that we thought would be good, there was a bunch of deer that came out of it. This little zone by that little fence gap that we liked last year, this seemed like there were some deer coming out around there. So we basically confirmed our hunches and and told us that, yes, this is a, a spot worth starting on. Um, a second thing it confirmed for me was that the this was more towards like the eastern access point. It was a little bit closer to the eastern access. On the western access point was a spot where when I had actually been out here in the summer and checked it out once in the summer, it looked like the fields were not going to be planted in a green food source. Um, it was looked like wheat that had been harvested or something. And so in my head in the summer, I was like, oh, they're not going to be on the west side as much because of that. But when we came back now in September, they had replanted something or something was coming back up green because now there was a big green lush food source coming in there. So so now both west and east sides might have something going on. So that was another thing in the back of our minds was that, okay, the whole whole stretch now might still be attractive. So that all leads us to night number one, where Josh and I both had two zones that we'd liked the previous year. Um, the previous year, we had walked into this area about a mile and a half in from one of those access points and passed a spot where the private land comes about as close to the public as it does anywhere. And there's an alfalfa field that butts right up to it. And there's a there's like a barbed wire fence that runs along the whole edge of the alfalfa field. And then one opening in that fence, like a big open gate. And it just seemed like, oh, this is obvious. This is an obvious spot a lot of people are going to go in. And I think that day last year, like, I don't know if it was drawing straws or whatever, but for whatever reason, you got that spot last year um, and hunted yep. it and liked it. And I had gone past you then that day and, you know, got on a couple of really good bucks, like 600, 700 yards further away. So now in 2021, we kind of just said, hey, you know, you want to start back at that spot you liked last year? And I was like, I'll go to that spot where I saw those big ones last year. And those, those would be two good starting points. Um, so that was what we decided to do. Those two spots lined up with the general movement we saw the night before. Uh, the wind was... You know, if if I was hunting in Michigan, I would have said the wind was really concerning um, in that it was blowing generally towards bedding, um, but it was going to be blowing generally to that direction the entire week. So we knew we were operating within the fact that we had to make some kind of sacrifice. So the trick was, you know, your wind's going to blow into some of the cover no matter what, every single day. So we just had to think about you know, which corner do we want to be blowing into when we positioned ourselves and hoping that we could position ourselves in such a way that the majority of the deer traffic would be coming, you know, from the front. So if you can envision like all the covers to our north, all the foods to our south, but we have southerly winds the entire week. So we had to hunt when it was like, if it was like a southwest wind, you know, we'd position ourselves so that we would hopefully 
um, be a little bit to the east of where we thought these deer were going and try to catch them in places where they'd be crossing in front of us versus like coming from directly above us or something like that. So, so that was a little bit of a, uh, just like a burden we were gonna have to bear the whole week because of it. But, you know, I think here, I don't know, I'd want to say that they're, I don't know. I was going to say they're less pressured than like Michigan deer or at home deer, but I don't know. I mean, these deer get hammered there. Um, for some reason, they're just a little bit dumber, I guess. I don't know how to describe it, but they, yeah, they I, I you... almost, Mark, I, I almost wonder if it's because they, they're just so used to having people in and out of there, um, that they just take a little bit more. Um, they, they just allow a little bit more of that human odor to be present before they really get boogered up in there. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I wonder if that's part of it. There, there are so many people in there, not even just hunters, just people recreating back there, people recreating on the river. Um, they, they may just be used to a little bit more human pressure than, uh, or be more tolerant of it than some other places. Yeah. I think there's, there's something to be said to that. It was just, at times it almost felt like we were suburban bow hunting with the types of stuff we were seeing. Like that night we were glassing. I saw a guy who was not a hunter. He was like wearing like a blue jogging suit, like taking a walk on the edge of this public land and these deer were out in the field and they kind of looked at him and then just went about their business. And this guy just kept on on a stroll. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I knew we were operating under different rules than some places I hunt. Um, at the same time, as soon as hunting season begins and hunters start pushing into these places where deer aren't used to it, we knew that would also still have an impact. Um, so, you know, Night number one, I decided to go back to the general area where I saw these two slammers last year. I saw two really, really good bucks last year. I was like 60 yards from them, just a little bit too far for me to feel comfortable. I made a move last year, and then you know I made that move right to the spot, but those guys came in and did a bunch of crazy stuff, and I never saw those big ones again. But I did see a couple other decent bucks within range that I passed on. So I thought this year was like, okay, I know this little spot seemed to funnel a bunch of movement down into this little area. It happened three different nights last year. Um, I want to hunt that same general line of movement, but I know there's going to be other hunters coming in. So I'm going to backtrack a ways. And I positioned myself, I don't know, maybe 150 yards further back in the cover. So basically went due north, trying to follow those main this main trail system that I thought they'd been using to come in. And I positioned myself up there closer into the bedding where I thought they'd be coming from. So that even if other hunters come in, I'll be deeper than they will be. Even if these deer move later in the evening, I'll be far enough back that I'll catch them in daylight. Um, And, you know, basic gist of night number one was that I thought I was in a great place. uh, And I saw some deer, saw some does, saw some fawns, saw a couple small bucks um, about an hour before dark had two other hunters come through that I could actually see biking in on a trail that I could see about a hundred yards away from me. So two other bikers came past me and heading towards where Josh was. Um, and then I saw one decent two year old buck and that was it for night number one. So it was pretty disappointed because I thought opening night of the season, I'm in a spot that I know these bucks like to come through and didn't, didn't see a good one. Um, plus the two other guys. So that was, that was my first day. Uh, Josh, you want to give me the the highlight of your night? What happened there? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of stopped at that same area that I'd hunted last year that I liked. Um, I did go in, uh, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 yards deeper than I than I was the year before. Get back in a little bit more into the cover. 
Um, but I also still want to be able to see this kind of, it's almost like a secluded alfalfa field back in there on the private. So I wanted to be able to see that and see uh, if there's deer come out private or kind of how they were using that this year. Um, so I kind of got uh, set up and, and just pretty slow um, for the first part of the night. Saw some does and fawns. Um, and I saw those same two hunters coming down that that trail that I could also see. They, they worked their way down to me, um, but they kept moving on, uh, which is probably good news uh, as best as it could have been. Um, and then things started to pick up a bit towards the uh, last half hour or so of light. Um, had a couple, uh, like a bachelor group of probably a couple year and a half old bucks. And I think there's like one, two and a half year old in there. That was a decent little, like a little forky six point with like a seventh point coming off um his main beam like just a, a nub um, but he was wide he was like to his ears he's kind of a, a cool looking buck and and uh i saw that that deer and then um i had randomly turned around just kind of checked behind me checked the 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 alfalfa field um i had my back to the alfalfa field um i was using i was in the saddle using the tree as cover um from deer that would have been coming out of the cover towards the alfalfa so i had positioned myself where I, I had to turn around to see the alfalfa field and i had turned around it at one point and there was a uh, what was the term justin a slammer slammer uh, yeah slammer buck slammer. yeah slammer buck standing there on that kind of main access trail that probably a half hour ago there was two kids walking their bikes down there's just big old buck standing right on this trail and kind of trotting along and and um he was now headed, uh, he would have been headed west, um, and I lost sight of him. Um, but that was uh, obviously confirmation that I was in a good little zone there. There's some good deer in that area. Um, saw a lot of deer that night, um, and then saw saw one really good buck uh, that, that I knew uh, was definitely a shooter. So couldn't really tell where he went, but kind of at last light, I saw him retrace his that that trail he had taken and head into the alfalfa under the cover of darkness there i could just see him through my binoculars um before i was i was ready to get uh packed up for the night so definitely definitely a good one in that general area couldn't tell you where exactly he came from um but but he was close josh how big is a what's a good one out there you think yeah yeah i bet that deer is probably um, he was in velvet, so he probably looked a little bit bigger than he actually was. Um, I bet he was 140 inch deer. Yeah. R- real cool. nice time length. And, and, uh, I just got a quick glimpse of him, but kind of judging by that, I would have seen his right side, uh, judging by kind of what I saw from the time length and everything. And I, I bet he was 130, 140 inch deer. Really, really nice, uh, public land deer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah, so so our our plan for this trip was to for the first like half or so, first handful of days of the trip, our plan was to focus just on the evenings because there was there's no way to get into this stuff without being in front of and alongside these big alfalfa fields where all these deer are feeding at night. So there's no good way to get in the morning without these deer knowing you're going in. So our thought was let's try to have, you know, at least three really good unscrewed up evening hunts. And then if we still haven't killed, once we get towards those last parts of the trip, 
then we would start hunting mornings and just throw caution to the wind and see what would happen so we could up our odds a little bit in a different kind of way. Um, so we didn't hunt that next morning. Uh, the thought process then was that, you know, Josh was going to make a play on that buck he saw. Uh, but I felt kind of lost. Like I hadn't seen anything worth making a move on after my first night. Um, so I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, one of my ideas was to push in deeper from that. Um, but then we had this other task, which was we wanted to go put some cameras on the other side of the property way over by that other access point just to see like, is there anything going on over there? And like I mentioned, like we did see there was some green food on that side too. So there probably was deer. Um, but at the same time, that was also a spot that's easier to access. There's like an easier parking lot to get, you know, settled in. There's an easier trail to get into that side. So I kind of had this assumption that, you know, if there was going to be more pressure, it would be on that side. Um, but I kept going back and forth in my head. I'm like, well, I could go back in where I went and push in kind of blind and find something. Or I could just like suck it up, be the guy that goes and puts cameras on the west side and go in there and see what might happen. Um, you know, I don't want to just assume it's blown up because maybe it's not. And that does like that spot was the spot that Josh had that night where he saw like 60 deer and 15 bucks. Um, so maybe there haven't been people there yet. And if there haven't been people there yet, it actually could be really good. Um, so I was going back and forth between like assuming there's gonna be a bunch of people and it's going to suck, or maybe I should go there and check it out and see what happens. Um, so I finally decided, you know what, I'll, I'll go, I'll just go and see, and we can check that off the bot. We can check it off the map, either have a great hunt or, um, you know, we learn that, yeah, that spot's not the place to go. So I went over there, hiked in, hung a camera. And my game plan originally was to, you know, even though I was going to go on this side, knowing that there was probably, um, you know, it was kind of like this high risk, high reward kind of thing. I still was like, I'm still going to go deep in the cover. I'm still going to go way, way back in there. So that even if people do show up, it won't blow, blow up my hunt. But as I got in there, I got just under a mile in, there's this spot that Josh was able to watch last year on that first night where a ton of these deer cross into the alfalfa. There's like three different fences that all come together. And like, these are like, you know, low barbed wire fences. And there's three of them that all come together. And there's a couple like strands down. And then there's a gate that's lower. And so I think because of that reason, a lot of the deer cross out of the cover right here. Problem is it's, it's right next to that access trail. And it's like the easiest spot you could get to. If you wanted to walk in down this main trail you would get here and you'd be like, oh, wow, this is an obvious great spot. This is where all these deer cross by. Um, so I got to that point and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to cross the fence. I'm going to hike another, like, I don't know, third of a mile in here or something like that to get back in this cover. But then I had this little like feeling in my head. I was like, God, there were so many deer that came through here last year. And that was like the third or the fourth day of the season. And they were still doing it. Um, now, after that day, other people showed up and it got screwed, but I don't know what's been happening here the last night. This is only day two of the season. So I was basically saying, I was trying to determine like, Hey, if no one was in here last night, this might still be dynamite. Um, and it's actually a, a concentrating feature that, you know, would really concentrate movement if they're still doing it. And I'd be able to see it versus if I go deep in there in the cover, it's a jungle and I'm kind of, you know, I'm going to see what's happening in a 40 yard radius and I better hope I pick the one feature that's right because there's a whole lot more area that they might be passing through and I'm making a blind guess on it. Um, 
so again, I'm back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I decided to settle on the riskier option, which was hunting close to that crossing, close to the access trail, close to the food. And it was either going to be the stupidest night ever, and I was going to have it blown up with hunters, and I'm going to sit there and feel like an idiot, or these deer would be still on their normal summer pattern. It would actually come right by, and i get a shot at one. Mark, let me ask you something here. Yeah. How early were you in there? I mean, like, presumably you didn't walk in there and there's somebody hanging there already. Like, what time were you going in? Correct. It, uh, end of shooting light was around 8.30 p.m., and we were getting in there, I'd say, around 4-ish. I think we, we, we ended up going in progressively later every day, um, but I think on that second day, we might have even been in there like 3.30 we were in there pretty early. Mark, Mark's right. I think it was right around four o'clock those first couple nights we were, we were getting in there. So those people that you guys kept seeing that were walking by you, were they just trying to get deeper or like, did you ever figure that out? Well, you know, there's a whole bunch of different examples. Um, you know, on, on, in previous years, there are some people that were going in further, but seemingly hunting like close to the private, but going past in this location. Um, yeah. On the west side, that was the case because there's actually a spot where the private land, um, this main trail continues onto the private land. And we found out by talking to some other hunters that some locals had permission to cross that private land that we yeah. couldn't do, but other people did have access to do. Um, on the side that Josh hunted, that we both hunted night number one and that Josh was hunting night number two, we historically had not seen other people hike in that far coming from the public. We'd seen people hike a short distance in because they're coming off the private. Yeah. Um, so in my case, though, on night number two, I'm you know just under a mile from the public access, um, but pretty close to the private. So I think I was 100 yards off the private, off that field. So if someone came in there, you know, they wouldn't have to go all that terribly far and they'd be right there and right on me. But I don't know. For for whatever reason, I decided, you know what, I got to try it. I have to try it before assuming that it's screwed up already. And to make a long story short, I sat there most of the night and saw nothing. And then we get to prime time, the final hour of the day, and I see a flash of movement up ahead of me up towards like the field. And I remember at first I'm like, a deer got past me? And I throw out my binoculars and I look at him. And it's not a deer. It is a hunter. Uh, and he's sneaking in with like an arrow knocked. He's like spot and stalk on the ground, sneaking down this trail towards me. Uh, and he ends up walking like right in my direction. I whistle at him, waved, and he looked up and saw me and had that like deer in the headlights look like, oh no. <laughs> we both probably had the it same thing. It wasn't thought. one of the hunting public guys, was it? No, <laughs> it wasn't. But he was. Wasn't Zach Farrenball, was it? He definitely was taking a page. He was taking a page out of Zach's book. Um, <laughs> he probably listened to your podcast from three weeks ago. He probably, yeah. he probably did. Uh, so, you know, God bless this guy. He, he saw me, he waved, and then he turned and went back the other way. Um, so that was the best case scenario there at least. Um, but I did think, well, you know, this will be interesting because he just walked up this way, blowing his wind, basically, you know, having walked that whole direction, final hour daylight and blown his wind with the way the wind was going that day. He would have basically blown his wind across everything I was hoping deer would come through. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and then turned around and went back. So my hope was like, okay, best case, he'd just keep on going a long ways back. But if he just goes you know, a little ways back the way he came and sets up, he'll be really blown into all the stuff that I was hoping would be safe from a win perspective. Um, light fades. We're down like the last 10 minutes of light. I haven't seen any deer yet. In my head, I'm like, well, this was the stupid hunt you figured it'd be. You didn't see anything. It was a bust. Well, you know, at least now you know. Now we focus on the other side. But last 10 minutes, all of a sudden I hear like crunching and crashing and stuff from behind me. And here's a doe and a fawn and another doe and a fawn. And they're coming out like 20 yards from me, passing, heading right towards that gap in the fence. Um, and now it's like five minutes left. And I'm hearing more movement, but you just can't see it. It's dark enough now that we're down like the last like four minutes or three minutes. I keep like looking at my phone and then pull up my binos and trying to see these deer. It's enough that like I need my binoculars up to really see what's happening off you know, further into the cover. And we're down to just like those last couple minutes. And I see another bigger body deer come into like a little opening. And I pull up my binoculars and it's a shooter buck. It's like a nice hard horned. This isn't like a giant buck, um, but for this trip, for me, he was definitely a shooter. Maybe like 120, hard-horned, eight-pointer looking deer, but he's like behind a tree. I can see him through pine boughs, Um, and he's standing there, and he just is there. He's not moving. He stopped walking. Some does are walking past. He's just kind of looking around, looking around. I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, God dang, like two minutes left. I, I need him to go like another five yards in either direction for me to be able to get a shot. He's within range. I would say he was right around that 30 ish yard mark, uh, but just no way I could get a shot. And so I let out a little, I decided to do just a little contact grunt, just like a little, like, rap, just, just in case maybe I can get him to be curious and do something. I let that little rap and it does get him to move. He kind of like bounces back a couple steps back the way he came. Um, but doesn't stop in the lane. So he bounces back a couple steps, still within range, but still behind cover. And as I am panning, with my binoculars over to his new spot, I see another deer step out behind him. And this is maybe like 15, 20 yards behind him. And this one's like a big shooter. Like this one's like a 140 wow. plus uh, buck in velvet. But he's like 55, 60 yards away. And that's definitely not a shot I was going to take in the last fading moments of light. Uh, and so, and that was it. Light faded. Mm. They were right there. Out just, you know, the one was in range. One was just out of range, but no clear shot. Um, and, you know, I, I basically left that hunt feeling pretty happy about it because I'd taken this risk. It almost seemed like it was going to be a really stupid, worthless night. And they ended up doing almost what I thought they would do, right? They came through. They still had not been so pressured that they wouldn't do what they were going to do. And I was just, you know, a couple branches away from killing one. So that was encouraging because now I had something to work off of. I knew that for day three, I can make a move on what I saw and hopefully get in behind them and catch them earlier. Even if they had been pressured, even if they did smell me or the other guy and decide to move later, I thought I could adjust for that. Um, so that day two ended up pretty good for me. Josh, day two is pretty good for you too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Day two is a, another decent day for me. I, I adjusted again, or I guess I adjusted for the first time um, on day two there. I had moved, uh, 40 or 50 yards uh, to what would have been my west. Um, a lot of the deer I saw the night before had been using um, a different trail than what I had set up on the night before. I think I only had like one doe and maybe like one year and a half old buck use that trail that I, I thought they might use uh, that previous night. Um, a lot of the other deer were 
were shifted, you know, 45, 40, 50 yards to my West. So I, I moved further that way, uh, to get set up. Um, and I was really in deer all night, um, within range, just, just not the right deer, uh, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, again, uh, getting towards the last light, last, a lot of the movement was pretty late. Um, at least of, of the better deer, uh, we were seeing, we, we it kind of like, it seemed all we could kind of be like in two waves. Like that first wave was pretty early movement. Um, does, fawns, uh, some young bucks. Um, and then really, you know, anything of note wasn't moving until pretty late. Um, uh, you know, last, last no, half hour, 15 minutes, something like that. Um, so again, late movement, um, ended up seeing, I'm trying to remember exactly what all I saw that night, but, uh, the, the, the key part of that night was just before maybe last five, 10 minutes of light. I saw a really nice, uh, eight pointer, different deer than the night before. Um, was like broadside at, at 50 yards. Um, some junk in between me and him, um, maybe could have squeezed off a shot. Um, man, that's just a, that's a pretty far shot on a white tail for me. Um, just wasn't quite confident taking that shot. Um, he was on alert. There was a doe, I think blowing back in the cover. I'm not sure what would have alarmed her cause she was not near me. Uh, I don't think she smelled me. My wind was blowing the other direction. So something had her on edge, which had some other deer on edge and just, uh, uh, again, 50 yard shot was, was not one I wanted to take on that deer. And, and, uh, while all that was happening, I, I, I look further to my West and there is, uh, another deer walking through another trail again, further another, you know, just out of range further to my West, even more. Um, and then behind that probably two and a half year old deer was a really, really nice, uh, eight point. I'm not exactly sure what he was, um, in terms of like size, but definitely a big body on him. Great time length. Um, and I got, uh, some good eyes on those two deer where they, where they crossed into the private, um, and made a mental note of that. Uh, and again, kind of like found myself in between, uh, two shooter bucks on either side of me. So kind of in a little bit of a interesting dynamic of which way do I move <laughs> to the next night, maybe, um, to, to try to make a play on them. Um, so yeah, uh, another good night, another, you know, another two close encounters with, with really nice bucks. Um, just feeling like they were maybe one step ahead of me, uh, both nights at that point so far. We were feeling pretty good after that night, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah. We were feeling real good after that night. Yeah. And, uh, both, both getting into good deer. Yeah. Now it should be pointed out. So we get done with a hunt like that. Right. And then we are moving every day pretty much cause we're running gun hunting with sticks and a saddle. So shooting light ends at like eight 30. Then we have to tear down our whole set in the dark. So we're maybe down out of the tree 15 minutes later. In some cases, we had to wait for deer to get past us. So let's say like 8.45, 9 o'clock, we get out of the tree. And then we have about a 45-minute walk to hike out, you know, about, you know, between a mile and a half and two miles to hike out. So you're talking about not getting back to the truck till getting close to 10 o'clock at night. We get back to the truck at like 10 o'clock. And like on night number two, I had to get my vehicle and then drive all the way to the other access point where Josh was. So we get there takes us 10 minutes to get undressed, packed up and going. So we're packed up and ready to go a little after 10. And then we have an hour drive back to the place we're staying. So we weren't mm -hmm. getting home 
every night until after 11. So we're making dinner at like 11.15 at night, eating dinner, doing whatever work we have to get done, and getting to sleep, you know, like 12.30, 1 o'clock every night. It was uh, very exhausting from that perspective. Mm. Um, it just felt like a grind, especially when we started hunting mornings. Um, so I'll fast forward a little bit for what happened to me that night because I wanted to make a play on those bucks, of course. And my thought process was that I could get back behind them. And, you know, basically what I did is I went in that evening, I went, I got above where they came in. So now I knew like we have the southerly wind. I, I know the basic path. They were going basically from northeast to southwest. So I would get set up to the north and the west of the route that all those deer came through. And like all these deer came through a narrow swath. So I felt pretty confident with where they were going to be generally moving. And my idea was to get farther back in the cover and upwind of that spot so that even if they moved 10 minutes later, I would still be within range of them if they came through on that same general, you know, uh, route of travel. And I got in there and it looked really, really good. Like I found this area where all these trails came crossing together. It really felt like the spot and, uh, got settled in and I don't know, a couple hours before daylight here come three people. Um, but not hunters, like just random people like shouting. It was like, they were looking for something. First I thought they lost their dog. And then I heard someone say something about, I thought it sounded like maybe he said arrow. Like, did I, did you find your arrow? I thought they said that. So I'm like, oh, someone shot something and then they're looking for the deer or something. But when I got a better look at these people, they did not look like hunters. Uh, So I don't know what they're doing, but they walked all over in the, I'm in a jungle. Like I'm in a thick, nasty jungle of cover at this point. So I don't know why they were way back there, but I could never figure it out. They never went behind me too terribly far, but they definitely mucked a lot of stuff up. Um, But they're out of there. The night, comes to a close zero deer move past me until after shooting light and then shooting light fades. And then I start hearing deer moving. So deer start moving past me, but after shooting light. Um, so super disappointed. Like I thought it was going to be the night. I really felt confident in my setup. And then, you know, that, that whole thing happened. Um, that was my evening did not go too well. Uh, Josh, your night number three was, was kind of similar, right? Yeah, very similar. Yeah, very similar. I, I readjusted again and, and set myself up in a position where I could um, I could see and, and have a good shot to that trail that I'd saw that uh, that good buck uh, walk the night before. And then also was uh, uh, able to shoot behind me to the other trail I had set up on the setup on the night before. Uh, I kind of gave up on that one buck that was, he was he was like near the main access trail. I just didn't think that um, that was a super high percentage spot where that, that deer would be again. Um, so I, I had moved again and it was a pretty slow night. I think that was the night I saw a moose come through, like a cow moose come through. She read the script perfectly. If she would have been a big old mature buck, it would have been game over, but, um, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty quiet night, uh, that night, night three. Yeah. So we're halfway through the trip. I was definitely starting to stress at this point. Um, and I'm thinking about, okay, you know, there was all these people like crazy in here the day before there was the other hunter. And I actually forgot that second night after I saw the two shooter bucks, not only was there the guys spot and stalking, but after dark, as I'm like tearing down my set, 
another hunter comes walking in along the edge of the private land that he, he'd been on the private land. He comes walking by. So, so there've been at least two hunters in there plus these three random people. So as I'm trying to decide what to do for night number four, um, one option was to try to push in deeper to where I was on this side uh, and try to hopefully rediscover where these bucks are moving through deeper, where they feel safer. But on this side, it's it's just an absolute jungle. Like there, there's, I could not find any rhyme or reason for why these deer were doing what they're doing, you know, other than when I saw that one route that that one night these deer used. Um, so I, I could either do that or I thought to myself, or I can go back to the east side where Josh was and where I had had previous success. And over there, there's a, there's like a channel of the river that runs back into this really good cover. And I always thought to myself that you could use the channel of that river as a concentrating feature, right? There's going to be spots where these deer want to cross and those will be spots you'll be able to find. Um, so I, I ultimately decided, you know what? I could just like go hodgepodge through the jungle on the West side, or I could relocate to the East, go back into that section. that I know there's deer because we saw them the first night scouting the previous year. I know I'd seen them coming in and there's this Island back there that I know there's deer They've got to be betting on this island. So I could go in there and find the best set of crossings. And like that is something that could actually concentrate movement and give me like a good chance at a bow shot versus going blindly the other side. And so I finally ultimately decided to do that. I slipped back in. This is a full two plus mile hike in to get to this spot. And I got back to this river channel and I walked this river channel like right into the belly of the beast. I mean like really thick jungle type stuff. And found where there was three, no, four different crossings all in this one narrow stretch of the river channel um, coming off that island onto the mainland, set up there. And, um, you know, the the moral of the story there is that it came really, really, really close to working out. Had a bunch of deer come through and ultimately had a shooter buck, a nice velvet I think he was a nine or 10 pointer, probably in that like 125 to 130 type category come through and right at 30 yards. But there was these darn bushes, like little willow bushes or something that he was walking behind. And so I can see his head and his back line. And I just can't shoot through these bushes with good conscience. Um, I'm trying to like stand up taller or kneel down lower or like get different angles to see if there's like some kind of hole I can find. Um, that I think I could slip an arrow through and I just, I can't find anything that I can get a reasonable shot at. So a super nice buck, uh, goes walking by 30 yards. Uh, I think he was even at 25 yards at one point as he kind of angled his way out. Um, but no good shot. Um, what I did see though that night was that that buck and the doe that was with him and then another like 15 deer, including another, what I thought was a buck. I could never see his head, but I could just see his big dark gray body. Um, they all did the same basic thing, uh, just most of them a little bit too far out of range. They were all following this tree line along the edge of the island that goes from northwest to southeast, and they were all angling down the edge of this island. So I thought to myself, I can relocate tomorrow for tomorrow morning. I decided we're going to start hunting mornings now, and I can get to a new tree where I'd be able to shoot to where this buck was, but also to where all the rest of those deer were another like 30 yards further back. Uh, so after dark, I tore down my set in the dark that night and actually went and set up my stand or my saddle platform that night 
before going out because I wanted to be there in the morning. Um, so did all that and then hiked the two miles out after that. So that was night number four, really close call. Thought I was set up for a dynamite hunt in the morning. I thought these deer, I mean, the fact that I saw 20 some deer all funneled down this one tree line following the edge of this Island. It just seemed like they're going to do it again. And now I'm set up for the next morning. They're going to come back and they're going to come back to bed. And this is going to be it. I felt really good about that. Um, Josh, night number four, you did see. Yep. I, I I did not see any shooters that night. I saw a ton of deer. I, I pushed back in deeper to the cover. Um, I, I had crossed this little channel uh, as well. I, I got into this little spot. It was like a point basically where there was this channel. And then there is a like a dry creek bed that runs out then to the the um, the main river there. Um, and it was just kind of this like perfect little terrain feature that I thought would, would kind of dictate some movement from the cover, from the thick, nasty cover. Um, a lot of the deer that I had seen the previous nights, I could tell they were crossing this little channel somewhere in this area and then they'd make their way, uh, to the alfalfa fields. And man, I saw a ton of deer that night. It was like this perfect little, uh, staging area where they were just coming out of thick stuff. And it was almost this little bowl. Um, with like either side of this little flat, uh, and the cottonwoods had like a berm on it and they kind of come up over this berm and, and they just kind of browse around in this, this flat. Um, and it was like early movement and movement all night long. Um, a lot of little bucks, a lot of does, a lot of fawns. Uh, but, but again, just kind of waiting for that, that later movement of those older deer. And it just never happened that night, but I felt really good about that spot. Um, I felt like if there's going to be something that's hap- that's going to happen for me, it's going to be in this, this general area. Um, so I was feeling pretty good, uh, for that, that just leaving all my stuff up there and hunting that spot in the morning too. Yeah. So the next morning was going to be the day, right? Um, we're going to go start hunting in the mornings after seeing what we'd seen and all these people and stuff. We decided, you know what, we, we gotta, we gotta give it a shot. We're way deep in the cover. To get in into the morning, we do have to go past some of these fields. Uh, we're just gonna take it. We're gonna we're gonna cross these fields. We're gonna walk normal, and hopefully we'll be able to get away with it for a couple of days. And we'll be far enough back that hopefully there will be deer that weren't bothered by us that will still transition back. Um, and and I'm gonna give you the whole rest of my hunt right now because I don't want to keep people here <laughs> sitting for too long. This is going. We're on the edge of our seat, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Here's I'm what happened. pumped about this morning hunt, man. This morning hunt definitely felt really good. I get in there that next morning. We got in there super early to the parking lot. We park our truck, and another truck parks up. And I'm thinking, like, there's no way nobody else is doing this. We're here two hours before daylight. We're hiking in two-plus miles to our spot. Nobody in a western state hunts whitetails like that. Like, no one likes whitetails enough to do stupid stuff like this. But someone else pulls up next to us, gets out of their vehicle, and I go over there to see like what they're doing. And it's another hunter. We start talking to this dude. He's got a saddle and climbing sticks. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going right back to that same place. I'm like, no freaking way. Do we find the one whitetail nut that's out here a million miles away from whitetail country? Crazy as us. Um, so he ends up hiking with us all the way back. Um, and, and I cut in into the cover sooner than he did. He was going to keep going and was actually hunting closer to the food. Um, but so here's another hunter does this thing with us. 
I slip into this spot that I'd made the move from last night and basically just what happens is that deer start piling in and they start all following a consistent travel route just like they did the night before. But instead of being on my side of the island, they all were on the opposite side of the island. Imagine like this imagine this island is kind of like a like a hot dog. Like it's it's a thin, narrow hot dog, like I said, that runs from northwest down to southeast. And there's a tree line and cover on the outside of the island, like all around the border of the island, but it's kind of open and grassy in the middle. And so the night before, they'd all been on that southern edge heading down to go feed in the fields. Um, and they seemed like they were going to go all the way to the bottom of the island, to the end of the hot dog, and then cross down there. And then this morning, I sat there positioned on that south side, but instead of coming along the south edge, they took the north edge. Um, and here come a bunch of deer, here come a bunch of little bucks, and here comes a shooter buck. Passes by like 65, 70 yards away from me maybe, but along that north edge. So saw that, was super disappointed. Wasn't sure if it was the same deer or not that I saw the night before. This one was hard-horned, so it, maybe it was. I didn't get as long of a look at this one this time. Um, and then I waffled back and forth like, okay, do I chase that movement and move somewhere else? Do I move over to that side for tonight? Or is my belief that maybe you know in the mornings they go that way back to bed, but in the evenings they're going to come back and do what they did last night? I decided to I decided that was more likely the case. I thought, you know what? I got to at least sit here at night and see if they're going to come back down this way. And I did. I sat that night. They did not come my way. They came out on the north again and followed that edge down. Didn't see a shooter. The next morning's our last day of the hunt. I decided I was going to just get kind of aggressive now. I actually slipped in on the ground and snuck in on foot and set up in a bush, like a clump of bushes and sat in the ground along that north edge and hope that these bucks would come back through. A bunch of deer did end up coming through within range and passed by like six yards from where I was sitting, but never was a buck I wanted to shoot. Uh, last night, I decided that I would just spot and stalk and just, again, ground pound my way all the way up that island, all the way to the tippy top northwestern corner where the bed, uh, like the beddiest, nastiest bedding cover ever was at and basically got like right on the edge of it. Because at this point now, it's been a day and a half since I saw a shooter. My thought is like, okay, they're they're on to us. I know where they're betting. I'm gonna get like right there. This is the last chance. And they're not moving as much as they were, but I know they're still in here. But maybe I can catch them move fifty yards out of their betting or ten yards out of their betting. I'll be right there. And uh, the the ending of my story was that they did not. I did not end up seeing a good buck come out of that betting. I was right in the thick of it, and I'm sure that deer were in there at times, but. They weren't in there that night, and I did not kill a buck. Um, so that was the end of my trip. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. 
These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of bull saying, if I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it, sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking creates searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Josh, I want you to tell me about the climax of your part of the hunt. Yeah, do I have to? I don't have much more to talk about either. Right? <laughs> you can, I guess, you can choose to. You can choose whether or not you want to yeah, talk about yeah, the end of your hunt. Yeah, I'll talk <laughs> about it. Uh, um, yeah, so, jeez, uh, um, that that morning, that next morning hunt was pretty uneventful. Not much going on, um, but kind of the the uh, climax of my hunt would have been that Friday night. So second or la- second to last day, and. Um, the, the movement kind of patterns were very similar to the night before. I was like, all right, this is good. These deer are still, um, cause this would have been my third sit now in this general spot. Um, feeling good about it. Uh, some of that early movement, um, you know, young bucks, does, uh, fawns all moving through there, all kind of just picking their way through, not really, uh, uh, alarmed or, or feeling pressured. They didn't seem like they were pressured much and, and uh, I was like, well, all I needed, all I need is, is for one of these big deer in the area to come in here and feel comfortable and, and do the same thing. And I'm, I'm in the game and, and, uh, man, about, uh, 10 after eight, something like that. I had about 15, 20 minutes of shooting light, um, caught some movement over to my right, coming out of thick stuff. And there's a nice buck and see some more movement behind him. And there's a really big buck. And then another a little bit smaller eight point, but still a shooter uh, and, and velvet comes out behind him and they work their way up over this little berm and are right out in front of me at 40 yards. I've got three shooter bucks um, with one really, really big deer, probably biggest deer of my life that I've, I'm going to have mm. an opportunity at. And they just kind of keep 
feeding. Let, let me uh, guess, Josh. Hold on. Uh, you shot the small one. Not <laughs> well, everyone writes the same story. <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I maybe would have would have. Um, I wish I maybe would have gone after that one. I may be telling a different story right here. Um, but they kind of keep wor- working from my right to my left, and and they get into a spot um, where if they kind of keep working up this this same trail, they're going to be at like twenty five yards first one kind of gets to that spot and he starts to kind of veer away from me. And I was like, Oh shoot. Um, that, that big buck is, is second and he's about, uh, just a little over 30 yards and he's, you know, pretty calm, but I, he looks like he's on the same trajectory of, of this other buck. And, uh, I, I need to make a move now if I'm going to get a shot at this deer. And, uh, he was kind of quartered away from me still good you know good position and i draw back and i go in just to total uh blackout autopilot mode like the bad kind of autopilot where i just rush everything and just the the moment gets the best of me and i i the next thing i know i'm looking at an arrow that that went under him um oh, and uh, i i missed that buck and i wish i could tell you what i did um but I've been replaying that, that moment over and over and over in my head. And I just, I, I think I just, I just rushed it. I rushed it. I punched a trigger. I didn't check my bubble level. I didn't do the things that I know I should have done. Um, and it cost me the biggest deer of my life um, mm. up to this point. And, uh, I've been kicking myself ever since, you know, ever since that moment. Um, you know, I, I had been gone for, at this at this point, like eleven days for my family or something like that. I had a, a work meeting out in Idaho um, before this. So I, I'd been out there for four or five days before the hunt. Now we're on the second to last day of the hunt, and I just felt, you know, all the weight of the world was was on my shoulders at that moment. Just like this feeling of failure, and like, you know, just a just a lot of doubt running through my head. Um, and uh, it was a it was a sucky position to be in um never feels good no not the first time i've missed i'm sure it won't be the last but um that one's gonna sting for a a long long time just given the scenario and um having just an awesome deer probably like 140 150 inch buck public land in a heavily pressured area and shoot under him just uh Mm -hmm. not a good feeling but got down you know that deer kind of bounded off kind of looked around all three of them they didn't really spook out of there um kind of went back in the cover and before dark i saw the deer that i missed kind of work his way back across this little opening in this flat i don't know about 70 80 yards out from me and just kind of browsed on through and just kind of kept uh um you know steered somewhat clear of that area and but he didn't seem too spooked i don't think he really knew what happened um you know i got down found my arrow perfectly clean mist there's nothing no hair no blood nothing so um you know best case scenario if you're gonna miss right i mean clean miss is a good is is good and uh you know i went right back in there that next morning i was like you know what uh this is you know i know that deer is in here he didn't seem too alarmed and i actually saw that son of a gun again that that next morning um come in about 60 yards to my south cross the river across the creek there at a different spot um, but it was like half hour, 45 minutes after daylight, just working his way back in there. Like, 
like nothing was wrong. So a part of me felt like I was maybe still in the game for that last hunt um, of the trip. Um, but ultimately, that that last night was probably my slowest night. Uh, saw a few deer, um, saw a couple young bucks, but but uh, that that bachelor group of three good good shooter bucks never never showed back up. So I uh, I left Idaho with my my tail between my legs for sure. So. Mm. Mm. That was it. That was man, the hunt. That's tough to hear, man. I hate that. Yeah, for you. yeah. Not fun. Not fun. And it's hasn't gotten really any better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it'll probably, probably be a while. Yeah. Well, you're right, and that it could have been worse. You know, I mean, a clean miss on an, is is sometimes a blessing. You know, rather than yeah a bad hit or something. You know, there's yeah. always a positive yeah, side just, to it. Yep. You know, I, I, you know, I feel good about that. I just wish I could have controlled my emotions or buck fever or whatever you want to call it. I just wish I would have could have controlled my, my, uh, myself a little bit better in that moment. And that's why I said, maybe I should, <laughs> maybe I should have taken a shot at that little bit of a smaller buck, but I, at that, at that moment, I don't think it would have mattered. You got three good deer coming in on you like that. It's, um, it wouldn't have mattered what deer I shot at. I think it would have been, uh, just, a um, a cluster. <laughs> so, mm. Um, but yeah, you live and you learn and, and, uh, try to, try to learn from that the next time I'm in that scenario and hopefully, uh, I'll have a better outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if that's think, not uh, a, if that's not a moral of both of our stories, I don't know what is, yeah. right? I mean, you gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad. You gotta learn to recover from the unexpected. You gotta adjust, grow try to find the silver linings and all these things. Cause no hunt ever really goes the way you plan it to very rarely. Does it go exactly how we want very infrequently? Do we think one thing and have it happen just that kind of way? And nine times out of 10, you mm-hmm. go on a hunt and you don't end up achieving whatever goal you had. So it's these kinds of pills we got to swallow as deer hunters, I think are always bitter in the moment. But I think that with time, I guess from my experience, at least, you're always better for that medicine. Give it enough time. Um, yep. So I think, I think there's maybe something to that with both of our stories, even though your pill was much less bitter to swallow, uh, Clay, since you got to wash it down with a nice steak or two. <laughs> mm-hmm. We we both yeah. uh, we all learned a thing or two, and we um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I had a lot of frustration coming out of this hunt, not ending the way I wanted to, but at the same time. I guess the only thing that and I fall back on this every time I have an unsuccessful hunt. So it's the same old, same old, but I guess I got to remind myself that, you know, did you do everything you could? Did you, did you put in the work you knew you should have? Did you leave it on the field? Uh, you know, by the end of the trip, we were, I was hiking eight miles a day on a whitetail hunt in rubber knee high boots, packing in and out a tree stand or a saddle and sticks every time. I mean, I was busting my balls trying to get this thing done and it didn't work out, but you know, I had a couple of really close calls and you know, we, we battled through adversity and you know, it is what it is and you just got to accept the results and uh, yeah. you know, not beat yourself up too much if it doesn't fall the way you want it to, I guess. And so that's, that's kind of where my head's at now. Mark, here's yeah, my question think- to you. My question is, I mean, you know, hearing the story and not being involved in the drama and the amount of work and seeing these people, which can be so disheartening, and then not bringing home a deer, which is disheartening. 
I mean, it sounds like you were in a good place. I mean, both you guys, I mean, for two guys to go hunting on public land and one guy to have a legitimate shot at 140 inch plus deer. I mean, that sounds like a win. So are you going back, you going back to this spot? <laughs> yeah, man, that's the ultimate question. Um, I I've been going back and forth on a thousand times because like still like the potential is absolutely there. You know, if, if a couple little tiny things went differently, we could have been talking about how Josh killed 150 inch and I killed 130 inch whitetail in public land. Uh, you know, it would have been awesome. We would have been seen all these guys. Yeah. We, yeah. Despite having seen all these guys. So, yeah. so part of me says, yeah, we should absolutely go back. Cause we're this close. Like we're, we're the tiniest of tiniest little bits of details away from having the ultimate success. Uh, on the flip side, there's this other part of me that when I look at this Western whitetail hunt that I do every year at the beginning of the season, it's like supposed to be my fun hunt. This is supposed to be the one where you go somewhere where people don't care about whitetails and the whitetails are kind of dumb and there's lots of them and you can go there and you see lots of whitetails and it's just like super, I mean, I kind of want it to be like your hunt, Clay, like up in Manitoba. Like I've had other Western whitetail hunts where there's tons of deer. They're not too worried about people. There's nobody else out there hunting them. And you just get to be in a beautiful place and hunt deer being deer. Um, and it's it's fun and do some fishing. Um, so I was hoping that this trip could be that kind of trip because I kind of need that to prepare myself for the grind that's the rest of the season. Um, but this hunt ended up just being like a grind of all grinds, right? I mean, I think I hiked like 40 plus miles chasing whitetails in rubber boots. Um, mm. And, you know, like I described, like especially when we were hunting mornings, right? So we're... We had to get up at 3.30 in the morning in order to get set, drive down to this place, hike in an hour, do the hunt. Then I hike two miles back out. Then we'd do something midday. Then we'd hike back in two miles, get set up, hunt, pull down the set, hike back out. So I'm like, we're not getting home and to sleep till 1 o'clock at night. We're waking up at 3.30. We're hiking eight miles a day. I mean, it was just a suffer fest there for a while. And so mm-hmm. part of me is like, you have enough suffer fests during other parts of the season, does this one need to be one too? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I just want to go try to find a easier fun spot for this hunt. Um, so, so, so I think you, what Mark's so, trying to say is the four of us are going to Manitoba next year. I think, yeah. what you're <laughs> Game for that. That might be the case. Yeah, man. I was yeah. going to, I was going to say, it seems like you guys did a lot of things right. And stuff that seemed to be, like that went wrong was somewhat out of your control as far as like trying to get away from people and whatnot. But like, if you went back to the same spot now it being a third time, like what kind of things would you do differently? Well, I can tell you what I do really fast. I would basically cut off what I did on nights one through three and skip all that. So I would skip the kind of like, I went further back into the cover night number one than I did all of year one, but not far enough. And then day two and day three, I made that play on the other side where, you know, I I almost had a shot there, but I think like there's just too much uncertainty over there. There's just people all over the place there. So I think I would have skipped all that and I would have jumped right back to where this island is. I think I, I think if I were to go back, I'm not hunting anywhere except for these islands, like the farthest back stuff you can get to. Um, and I think if I had more time to work on this island and or others even deeper in there, I think that's where we could catch these bucks in a way that they're not like nobody else is going back there. It's like I find, like, knock on wood. Um, even if someone's that's, willing. That's not true. They might now. I had, 
Well, you did have I one had guy. Someone back you're right. With me that the last morning. morning. So that's true. But I, I think you're right. I, I think that's exactly the ticket, though. Just get back into these, these, these areas that are are heavier in cover, where where less people are likely to go crossing, you know, crossing the creek or the channel or whatever you want to call it. Anything that we can do to put some more terrain features that other people aren't willing to go through, um, just start there. Just cross off the rest of it and get back in there deeper from from day one yeah and, then and I, the... I actually think I'd, I'd try to hunt the mornings more like the entire trip maybe i think we found that you know i think we're going to put more pressure on it um but i think we found that we can get in there um and hopefully we we kill early and then not have to worry about it um but definitely decent morning movement better than i thought there would be yeah we, we seem to be able to get away with that so yeah you know I don't know. You you could also say we should have just done exactly what we did again, and you know the tiniest yeah. thing could have got our way, and we might have worked out. But it's you know that's yeah. that's hunting, right? Just yep. sometimes it falls your way, sometimes it doesn't. I I the only thing I can tell you for certain is that I don't feel bad about what we did. Like we worked our tails off, we did a lot of things right, and it didn't fall our way. But I'm I'm not going to beat myself over that too much. Yeah. Well, sounds like a good hunt. I mean, you guys were on deer and, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of disheartening to not get much reward after that much work, but man, when it does come together, it'll be that much better. So. Yep. That is the, yep. that's the truth. That's a cliche friend thing to say. <laughs> it is. <laughs> what I just said was like classic. You should record that and like have it play on your phone. <laughs> yeah. Like for when you need a little encouragement. Yeah, but it's as cliche as it is, it's it's just the truth <laughs> of it too. Yeah. Uh, I need yeah. to drive around that with my in my truck for the next uh you know three months of the season, just listen to Clay tell me that so and get over this miss. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, hey, I I uh I last year I made a list of all the deer that got away that I felt like were killable. And I find that those deer are often more memorable than the racks I've got hanging here mm-hmm. in my office. Mm-hmm. And I just went down and sat down and made a list. And and as of last year, I had 11 deer that, I, I mean, I could tell you more about those hunts than the hunts that, you know, were successful. And there's value in those animals, yeah. you know, there really is. And and I like to think that because of those eleven deer, that's the reason I've got the deer that I've got on the wall. You know, it sure. just takes a lot well, yeah. of opportunity to kill a big deer. You just gotta, you just gotta get out there and do it. Well, and you probably replay the 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 moments from that hunt or those ones that you don't bring home more so than the ones you do because it's like, okay, what could I have done differently, or what happened here to cause him to do this, or what happened here that caused me to do that. Um, you just play those over and over in your mind where, you know, you may think back, oh, that was an awesome hunt when I shot that deer and it all came together. But, um, you're not maybe scrutinizing the details like you did on, on one that didn't happen. Yeah, for sure. Well, boys, this one's gone longer than I thought. So we should probably wrap it up. But, uh, I think we both, we all four had a hell of a week, hell of experience, learned some stuff, had some good times, had some bad times. And, uh, I guess that seems like an appropriate way to kick off a deer season, huh? For sure. Mm-hmm. 
pretty yep. far for the course. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, off we go to the races for yet more. <laughs> we'll see, uh, uh, we'll see what happens next, but, uh, thank you, Josh, Clay, Justin, appreciate you guys taking the time to, uh, round up and talk through all this stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. Thanks Good for talking. Yeah, thank you. And that is a wrap. Another episode's in the books. And, uh, you know, as is to be expected, another season is off to a start, a start of some kind. Uh, you know, it wasn't the start I wanted, but uh, we learned some stuff. We had some close calls. We had a fun hunt in a lot of different ways. And, uh, you know, onward. You always learn, always grow, take something from a hunt like this, use it as a kind of a jumping off point for the next one. So that's my game plan. Hope all of your hunts are going well if you're already out there. If not, get all those final pieces of work done. Get your head right, get your bow right, get your gear ready. It's game time. Any day now will be those opening days, and I'm excited for you. I'm excited for my own next hunt too. So until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.